Welcome to Night Night Bitch. I'm your host, Molly, your guide to awe-inspiring texts read by me or in the voices of their original creators. Please know I don't own any of this content. It's all freely accessible online and duly cited in my episode descriptions for your reference. This podcast is a creative outlet for me, so I don't update it as regularly. But if you'd like to subscribe to my other podcast, Back From The Borderline, I release two thought-provoking episodes each week. And now, let's dive into the episode. Welcome. It's time to rest your weary mind, unwind, escape the matrix, and explore the arcane. We live in a culture that is rapidly losing its grasp on myth and meaning. Exploration of philosophy, depth psychology, esotericism, the occult, myth, and mysticism have been proven to inspire awe. Such experiences of daily awe have been shown to be psychologically beneficial and aid in the potential expansion of consciousness. Each time we're here together, I'll select a reading, article, or sample audio that could increase your opportunity for such experiences. While you listen, you might fall asleep. You might wake up. You might do both. Maybe finding the perfect balance between awake and dreaming is exactly what you always needed. Night night bitch. This is the exercise for your own development process designed by you. You should be hearing my voice in your right ear. Remember the purpose, your purpose for this exercise. And begin your pre-preparation process now. The affirmation beginning, I am more than my physical body. Autumn is the time of year when the Earth's axis begins to tilt away from the sun, days becoming shorter and nights longer. The autumnal equinox, around September 21st, is that crossing point when the day and night are of equal length. The word equinox originates from the Latin word equinoctium, Aquinoctium is constructed of the roots aquo, even, and nox, night, literally meaning equal night. In contrast to the vernal equinox in spring, when life is renewed, it is during the autumnal season that living things hibernate, slow down, and die. Instead of springing forth from the surface of the earth, life withdraws, contracts, and is naturally drawn down into the planet. 
and from this time until the vernal equinox, the earth passes through a natural period of cleansing in preparation for the spring. This process is represented in Greek mythology through the story of Persephone, this daughter of Zeus, king of gods, and Demeter, goddess of grain, was abducted by Hades, the lord of the underworld. Hades is also referred to as Pluto in Roman mythology. Pluto carried Persephone to his dark domain within the interior of the planet to make her his wife. Entreated by Demeter, Zeus commanded his brother Hades to return the chaste Persephone. However, upon learning that Persephone partook of a pomegranate fruit during her captivity in the underworld, he declared that she must remain every year in the darkness of the netherworld for every seed she consumed. Persephone ate six seeds. Thus, for every six months, Demeter, goddess of grain and the harvest, retreats from the world to mourn the loss of her daughter. The withdrawal of this goddess of nature results in the death and or stasis of natural life on the planet. When her daughter returns to her, the spring equinox, then Demeter rejoices, resulting in the renewal of life and abundance in the natural world. Each year, this drama was celebrated by the Greek Eleusinian mystery schools in the month of September. At the beginning of the ceremony, all those participating purified themselves through ritual baptism by bathing in the sea and sacrificing a piglet. Throughout the ceremony, the initiate would fast and undergo a symbolic death of the old self. At the end of the ceremony, the priestesses would reveal the vision of the holy night, Halloween, Hallows Even, the holy evening. Said to have been a fire symbolizing life after death. Of course, these are all symbols understood by those with knowledge of the mysteries. This Eleusinian practice contained both public and esoteric or hidden components. Certain rituals like the procession from Athens to Eleusius announcing the harvest and the new season were exoteric or public-facing events. But only the initiates participated in the esoteric hidden rites and understood the hidden significance of the external ritual. And this same exoteric, esoteric event was and is recognized in cultures throughout the world. The Mexican Day of the Dead, El Dia de los Muertos, can be traced back to the Aztecs, Mayans, Nahua, and Totonac. Originally celebrated near the onset of autumn, it was the Spanish 
that moved the popular festival to coincide with the Catholic All Saints All Souls Day in their attempts to convert the locals. It was common practice during the celebration to displace skulls as symbols of death and rebirth. The festival itself was presided over by the Lady of the Dead, the goddess Mekteka Siwatl or Coatlicue. Coatlicue means serpent skirt, who is the virgin mother of the Aztec Christ's Quetzalcoatl and Huitzilopochtli was represented in the image of a human caduceus with two serpents for a head, representing to those who knew the mysteries the means of mystical death and rebirth. The exoteric tradition is and was a celebration of children and the remembrance of dead relatives. In the Hindu tradition of Durga Puja, it is believed that the autumnal festival was a consequence of Rama's prayer to the goddess Durga, out of season in autumn instead of spring, seeking her blessings before venturing out to kill the Rakasha, demon King Ravana. In the exoteric tradition, Durga is worshipped as the all-powerful demon-slaying goddess, an incarnation of Shakti, in addition to being an example of the loving, caring mother. By esoteric understanding, she further represents the aspect of divine mother death, power of Shakti, whom directly administers the process of mystical death, of egos or internal demons within the initiate in preparation of his or her rebirth. The festival Mahalaya Amavasya is also celebrated at the onset of autumn, dedicated to the remembrance or worship of the souls of forefathers. In Japan, autumn is associated with Higan, a seven-day period in which offerings of food, flowers, incense, and prayers are offered at the tombs of ancestors. In Buddhism, the change in seasons is symbolic of crossing from the shore of illusion and ignorance to the other shore of enlightenment, the end, death, of ignorance. Again, both the exoteric and esoteric aspects are apparent. The Jewish Harvest Festival of Sukkot takes place in autumn. It is a festival of joy that commemorates the 40 years that the Israelites wandered the desert and lived out of temporary shelters, which were called Sukkot. At that ceremony, water was traditionally drawn from deep wells beneath the temple and poured onto the altar. This is, of course, an exoteric ritual symbolizing a very significant esoteric teaching veiled behind the symbols of the number 40, the drawing of water from beneath the temple and offering the cleansing water to the altar. The ancient Egyptians celebrated an autumnal festival dedicated to the mother goddess Hathor, the divine cow. It was a 40-day festival that celebrated the union of Hathor and Horus, the Egyptian Christ, the child of their union, 
Harsomtis was born in the 40 days of celebration. The American tradition of Halloween is understood to be a direct descendant of the Celtic tradition in the United Kingdom. According to this tradition, November 1st marked the beginning of the new year and the coming of winter. The festival of Samhain, which means summer's end, was celebrated the night before the new year, presided over by the Lord of the Dead. In Welsh, this was Arwen, and the Irish called him Don. The Celts traditionally recognized a twofold division of the year, summer running from Beltane, fire of Bel, Belinus or the Celtic Christ, the vernal equinox of Samhain, the autumnal equinox, and winter running from Samhain to Beltane. During this festival, Celts believed the souls of the dead returned to mingle with the living and food was left on the doors for them. In order to scare away the evil spirits, people would wear masks and light bonfires. Large wickerwork figures were also constructed and burnt in mock sacrifice. It is said in the exoteric tradition that the wickerwork figures represented a vegetation spirit. The symbol of the figure with the appearance of a man can be readily recognized esoterically as the aspect of an initiate that must die within the alchemical fires in order for the real man to be born. It's commonly understood that the hallow of Halloween derives from the Anglo-Saxon word halik, meaning holy. In Celtic tradition, the hallows are further understood to be related to the paraphernalia of magic, sword, staff, wand, cauldron, and stone. Again, these are symbols immediately recognized by those with an understanding of the mysteries, i.e. the sword is the lingam, the fire, the active principle, the staff is the illumined spine of the master, the chalice or cauldron is the yoni, the waters, the passive or receptive principle, and the stone is the philosophic stone, the waters of Yesod, the mercury of occult science. When the Romans invaded Britain, they embellished the tradition with their own, dedicated to the goddess Pomona, which was also a celebration of the harvest and a time spent honoring the dead. Through even a brief study of the autumnal celebrations of different cultures, one can begin to see the connection. Woven within this tapestry of external practices, the esoteric teachings are evident to those with ears to hear. The process of death in nature becomes the perfect metaphor for the autumn of the initiate as he enters his winter of discontent. The seed must die within itself in order to germinate and generate new life. The seed cannot become a tree if it does not cease to be a seed. Halloween 
All Hallows' Even or the Holy Evening is celebrated October the 31st, 40 days after the autumnal equinox on September 21st. Even a superficial study of the Old and New Testaments of the Christian Bible reveals a prolific appearance of the number 40. 40 days of the universal flood, 40 years the Israelites were in the wilderness before being allowed entrance into the land of milk and honey, 40 days Moses was on Mount Sinai before receiving the Ten Commandments, 40 days Jesus fasted in the wilderness before gathering his disciples, 40 days Goliath challenged the Israelites before his defeat by David. But this symbol is not exclusive to the Judeo-Christian tradition. Forty days, Horus struggled with Seth before his eventual victory in the ancient Egyptian mysteries. Zoroaster had his great revelation in his 40th year. Forty days, Buddha was under the Bodhi tree to attain enlightenment. The tale of the trials of Odysseus in the Odyssey occurs over a period of 40 days. It becomes clear that the number 40 is a universal symbol because it veils the same universal truth. In an effort to better understand this truth, we will turn to the Judeo-Christian tradition for help. 40 is the Kabbalistic value of the Hebrew letter Mem. The character Mem is a symbol for water in esotericism, water symbolizes the creative forces that coagulate within the ninth sphere of the Kabbalistic tree of life, Yesod, which means foundation in Hebrew. These are the genesiac waters of creation and of destruction related with the Holy Spirit. Remember that Shiva, the Hindu Holy Spirit, is the god of creation and destruction. The material world is destroyed by the 40-day inundation of water, which is the same water of which Jesus the Christ tells Nicodemus he must be born again. The proper use of these waters results in the creation of the vehicles of the soul and in the destruction of the ego. Where the Kabbalistic value of Mem is 40, the numeric value of Mem is 13 because it is the 13th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 13 equals 1 plus 3 equals 4 equals 40. Thus, Mem is also related to the 13th Arcanum, immortality. A study of Arcanum 13 reveals the relationship between death and rebirth. It illustrates the harvest season of autumn, the reaper, harvests the values of what has been previously sown, as new and different life grows from the fertile soil of the previous crop's demise. It indicates radical change, the kind of change that can only occur through the psychological death of the old self so that something new can be reborn. The number 40 refers to a long period of time in which a lot of mystical death must occur within the waters of Yesod. But it also indicates the means by which mystical death occurs. 40 equals 
4 plus 0 equals 4. 13 equals 1 plus 3 equals 4. The number 4 represents the fourth man, the one in the Tao, equilibrium. Excellent psychological equilibrium is necessary for the synthesis of the four elements to occur within the waters of creation. The lingam inserted in the yoni is wisely utilized for this purpose, but the purpose is to create spiritually and not physically. The sexual creative energies are retained and sublimated instead of spilled and squandered. This same force is utilized for the purpose of mystical, psychological death of the ego. Many will be familiar with the tale of Jonah and the whale from the Christian Bible. Within the name of Jonah is contained the same mysteries that are contained in his story. The Hebrew name of Jonah is Yonah. The name itself means dove. Already we are told that the doctrine of Jonah is related to the Holy Spirit. Recall the moment that the Holy Spirit descended as a dove on Jesus at his baptism. The symbol of baptism illustrates how the Holy Spirit is received through true baptism in the waters of Yesod or the river of Jordan. In world tradition, the Holy Spirit is frequently represented as a beautiful, graceful bird usually indigenous to the region of any particular tradition. In Hindu, it is the Hamsa swan. In the Aztec tradition, it is the Quetzal bird. In the Egyptian tradition, the Ibis, and in Greek, the eagle. Noah utilized the dove of the Holy Spirit three times to confirm the presence of the floodwaters. and his 601st year, the waters receded the intervention of the Holy Spirit is pivotal in the work of an initiate on the path. Without it, there can be no alchemical birth and no mystical death. This is why Jesus specifies to Nicodemus that he must be born again of water and of the holy fire of the Holy Spirit. This is also related to Jesus' explanation to the Pharisees that all sins are forgiven except those against the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, the name Yonah or Jonah breaks into the four Hebrew letters. Iod, which means the phallus and the masculine principle or fire. Vav, the staff or spine. Nun, which means fish, sperm or ovum and hay, the uterus and the feminine principle, or water. In Jonah's very name is the lesson of alchemy, the proper use of the Holy Spirit, the uniting of the lingam yoni within the waters, using the fire of the Holy Spirit to raise the bronze serpent of the staff or the spine. The fish is, of course, a symbol of the Christ, which lives within the waters of creation. The Hebraic Talmud further offers that Yonah, son of Amitai, was at pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and he entered the rejoicing of water drying, or alchemy, and the Holy Spirit rested upon him, similar as to when Jesus was baptized in Jordan. 
And yet a further study of the name Yona reveals another aspect of the path. As previously mentioned, each Hebrew letter possesses a numeric value. Kabbalistically, adding the values of the characters in Jonah's name results in the sum of eight. Arcanum number eight is related with judgment, ordeals, and suffering. It is the number of Job, the number of the Bodhisattva. Remember that the great Bodhisattva was born in the midst of a lake at the age of eight. The number eight is the number of the infinite. The eighth arcanum of the tarot is a woman with a sword in her hand before the scale of cosmic justice. Without woman, no initiate can receive the sword. The sign of the infinite signifies work in the ninth sphere, and this is sex. The sign of the infinite represents the path of Ida, Ob, and Pingala, Od, in the miraculous ascension of seminal energy toward the brain in the form of an eight. And it is this middle path between these two polarities that is the secret path through which the serpent ascends, or the Kundalini. But it's necessary to equilibrate the forces. The number eight is also a number related to the eventual goal of the Bodhisattva, who walks the path of Job, the eighth Venustic initiation. The following is a passage from the Christian Bible. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the present of the Lord. Jonah's flight to Tarshish is related to the first negation of Peter. This is the first step of the initiate, to accept the call of the being, the will of the Father, and begin walking the path of the great arcanum. This means denying the egocentric self, whom's attached to worldly ambitions, in order to do the work of the being. Thus, he must ascend to the ninth sphere and into his own kilpoth from the presence of the Lord. Nineveh is the aggregate of egos represented by the civilization that is built within to fill the void that is left by the absence of a connection with God. This is a compensation that is made internally, which is reflected in the physical world. Nineveh is created as a material substitute for God a false idol, and therefore against God. Thus Jonah's being summons him to bring Nineveh to repent. Jonah pays the fare to begin this great work. There is a price to be given this opportunity, and this price is paid with Dharma. The initiate must face, from moment to moment, the decision to do the will of the being or the will of the ego. The passions and attachments of the ego arise like a tempest through ordeals that shake and threaten to break the very ship of the initiate. But it is through weathering such ordeals that one becomes familiar with the activities of his or her own egos and builds faith in the being and the work. The consciousness is still asleep during this process. This is why the work memory disciplines of the self-remembering and self-observation 
are important tools for the training, the awareness of freed consciousness. It's imperative to awaken consciousness and put an end to our ignorance. We must call upon God or a higher power or our innermost self for help in this work. It is only by this grace that such as the great work may be accomplished. The word Hebrew means comes from the other side of the river. The river, of course, is related to the waters of Yesod. On the tree of life, the other side of the river refers to the Sephirah, representing the many heavens that are the superior to the Sephirah of Yesod. The one who comes from the other side of the river is the being. Jonah is speaking as the superior aspect of his own monad. On this side of the river is Malkuth, the physical world, and Kilpoth, the abyss. Notice on the tree of life that the way to the other side of the river is through the river itself. Here is another passage from the Christian Bible. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. In this passage, the sailors are aspects of Jonah's own consciousness. The consciousness knows his mission as the human soul is to descend into the ninth sphere or be cast into the waters. And the sailors, trapped in the ego, are afraid for themselves Sincere work in the waters of Yesod, the forge of Vulcan, means death for the ego. Thus, they hesitate to cast him into the waters until they have no choice. There is also the fact that Jonah must pay significant karma as a bodhisattva. Thus, even the consciousness that is free and belongs to the being is not going to let it be that easy. Thus, Pilate, the traitor of the mind, washes his hands. The darkness of the mind does not comprehend the light of the being. Instead, the Pharisee, or the intermediate mind of blind dogma, stands before God and says, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. The Pharisee does not understand the way of being. The Pharisee rests his laurels on the second law, the Bodhisattva answers to the first law, the law of the Father. The superior law always eclipses the inferior law. There are many examples of this principle in the Bible, in which the Pharisees condemn the Master Jesus and his disciples for unlawfully healing the sick and plucking corn to eat on the Sabbath, or breaking bread with sinners, or eating with unwashed hands, etc. And to these rebukes, Jesus the Christ replies, quote, But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. 
ye would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath day. But the Pharisees are confounded by wisdom. The Lord is thus condemned by the egotistical animal mind. Quote, so they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. End quote. Remember the saviors of countless traditions who were cast into the waters as infants. Moses, Perseus, Romulus and Remus, Maui, etc. Nor should it be forgotten that the many saviors born from stone, the philosopher's stone, the liquid stone of mercury, or the waters of Yesod, the Persian Mithras, the Babylonian Enkidu, the Chinese Chi, the earliest Norse gods, the Apache savior is even named child of water as a direct reference to the means of his alchemical birth. It is within the waters of Yesod that the real human being is born. The next part of Jonah's story is where he is swallowed by a great fish and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. A great fish swallows Jonah. This fish is Leviathan. Leviathan is Lucifer. Breaking down the name Lucifer in Latin, we can find the following root words. Lux equals light, and fur is bearer or bringer. So Lucifer, translated in Latin, literally means the bearer of light. He is the shadow of the Christ, the psychological trainer from whom the initiate must steal the fire of the gods. This work is accomplished in the descent into the ninth sphere of Yesod. For three days and three nights, the Bodhisattva must overcome the tests of Lucifer, the three mountains of alchemical birth, mystical death, and sacrifice are the three days and nights of the Bodhisattva. Thus, Jesus was heard to say, quote, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands, end quote. And again in Matthew 12:40, Jesus says, for as Jonah's was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of earth." End quote. To walk the path of the Bodhisattva, one must know and practice the science of alchemy. This is how the vehicles of the soul, to the Soma, Helicon, are fabricated. This is how the golden child, the savior, is born in the first mountain. But it is only the human soul who walks the direct path that is allowed to proceed to the work of the second mountain and be truly twice born. To be truly twice born requires completion of the second mountain, complete psychological death. Remember the words of the wise King Drupada from the Hindu epic who states, quote, among all men, those who are twice born are the best. The tale of Pinocchio is the story of the initiate. He is a wooden boy that must learn the knowledge of good and evil and be swallowed and eventually regurgitated by the whale or Leviathan or Lucifer in order to become a real human being. The means by which he emerged from the belly of the whale and rescued his lost father was with fire. 
the fire, the Holy Spirit expresses through the alchemical waters of Yesod so that the Merkaba, the fiery chariot of the soul, may be created to carry Elijah, the twice-born, to heaven, to the realm of the Father. The brave ones, the heroes who voluntarily descend into the ninth sphere to be swallowed whole by Leviathan are descending into their own Kilpoth, for it is in the great abyss, the belly of hell, that the legion of egos reside. And thus, it is here the work of death, annihilation of the ego, or the false I, must take place. The following in the Christian Bible from Mark 2.17 reflects this. Quote, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. For thou hast cast me into the deep, into the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, all thy billows and thy waves passed over me, and then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The holy temple is the temple of the being, the seven bodies, within which is found the foundation stone of the temple. Yesod is the ninth sphere and literally means foundation, the foundation stone of the temple, Yesod, is found in the sexual glands. The nine-faced stone of masonry, the cornerstone, comes from the mercurial waters. This stone lies between the pillars of the temple Chakin, Chokma, Chesed, and Boaz, or Bina, Geburah. Mercy of the father and justice of the mother. And yet again, these allegorical, esoteric truths are mirrored in the words of the Christian Bible in Isaiah 28:16. It reads, quote, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This cornerstone is Peter, or Potter, Petra, which means rock. The rock upon which Jesus says he will build his church. The Persian Christ, Mithras, is called Theos Ekpetras, or God from the rock revealing the exact same knowledge of the Gospel of Peter. Another quote from the Christian Bible reads, The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. As the initiate descends into the work of the ninth sphere, he discovers how the, quote, weeds of the animal mind wrap about the head, the head of the intellectual animal, how the sensory mind that knows only the stimulation of the five senses and the intermediate mind that knows only dogma and systems of belief obstruct the experience of the inner mind, the superlative consciousness of the being. Thus, the egotistical, animal mind is confined to a subjective, false experience of the world. 
The false impressions received by this lunar mind imprison the consciousness in a cage of identification with desire. The wisdom of Solomon in Ecclesiastes states, quote, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit, end quote. The second noble truth of Guatma Buddha states very clearly that suffering arises from attachment to desires. In Hinduism, Krishna confirms this many times in the pages of the Bhagavad Gita when, quote, a man has given up the desires of his heart and is satisfied with the self alone. Be sure that he has reached the highest state. The sage whose mind is unruffled in suffering, whose desires is not roused by enjoyment, who is without attachment, anger, or fear, take him to be one who stands at that lofty level. It is a truth that is stressed by masters of every single tradition because it is this attachment to desire sensation that turns the wheel, the painful wheel of samsara, imprisoning every intellectual animal within the confines of the earth with her bars. Another quote from the Christian Bible reads, quote, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy." End quote. The choice is to observe the false idols of the ego or the mercy of the Father in heaven. Again, in the words of wise King Solomon, quote, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, end quote. The experience of the egocentric, materialistic mind is subjective and lives to satisfy its own desires. It is a vain liar. The being, chesed, or mercy, is forsaken by those who pursue the will of the ego. Another quote from the Christian Bible reads, quote, but I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. End quote. Jonah is ready to pay what he owes. It is with the silver coins that Judas cast to the floor of the temple that one begins to pay what is owed, also known as karma. Silver is related with the lunar forces of the moon, with materialism. The 30 silver coins represent the three traitors of the mind, Pilate, the heart, and the actions, Judas. The silver coins are the ensimonies cast to the floor of the temple of the Lord when one fornicates in the mind, heart, and actions. It is the spilling of the cup of Hermes. This is how the innermost is sold for 30 pieces of silver. The silver must not be cast to the floor of the temple, but must be alchemically transmuted into the gold of the Tosoma Halicon. Judas must be hung from the tree of knowledge in order to receive the gospel of John the Beloved, or the heart. Odin, father of the Norse pantheon, knew the mysteries of Judas when he hung himself for nine days on the world tree, or the tree of life, which they called Egdrasel, in the pursuit of wisdom. In the Norse Edda, Odin is quoted as saying this, quote, I know that I hung on a high windy tree for nine long nights 
pierced by a spear, Odin's pledge, given myself to myself. No one can tell about that tree, from what deep roots it rises. Nine mighty songs I learned, and I came to drink that costly mead, the holy vessel held, cup of Hermes, holy grail. Thus I learned the secret lore, prospered and waxed in wisdom. A quote from the Christian Bible that mirrors this esoteric learning is, quote, And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. The first day that Jonah spent within the great fish, or the Leviathan, or Lucifer, is the first mountain of initiation, or alchemical birth. The second day is the second mountain, mystical death, at the end of which is resurrection. And the third day, within the great fish of Leviathan, or Lucifer, is the third mountain, sacrifice. Thus, after three days, in the belly of the beast, Jonah is a resurrected master. He lives in harmony with the great law and is ready to do the work of his father as an awakened avatar of the Christ. He is, quote, vomited upon dry land because he's no longer permitted to work within the waters of alchemy. The proper use of the sexual force that was utilized to create the twice-born is now prohibited to him. The work of the seven days of creation of the true human being is complete and sex belongs to the monad now. Thus, Isis in the Egyptian mysteries could only find 13 pieces of the dead god Osiris. The 14th piece, his phallus or penis, was swallowed by a fish, never to be found thereafter. Osiris's phallus was lost forever because as a resurrected master, he was prohibited from the sexual act. Every lustful element was already dead in him. He had attained perfection in the sex. Therefore, Isis replaced his phallus with a phallus of gold. The lead of the ego was transmuted into the gold of the consciousness. Deep within the mountain is found the fiery forge of Vulcan. It is here that the mysteries of Doth are cast. Another quote from the Christian Bible that mirrors these allegorical esoteric truths from Matthew 22, 29 to 32. It reads, quote, Thus the Master Jesus explains to the scribes and the Pharisees, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living." End quote. So therefore, we are made to understand allegorically that only the twice-born who has died within himself and in been born of the water and fire of the Holy Spirit is truly living. Again, we hear this reflected in John 3, 6, quote, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit, end quote. Those whom have not completed the great work are truly dead. They are no better than whitened sepulchers with the appearance of beauty and virtue on the outside while containing only fetid 
and rotting corpses of ego and spiritual death within. Another allegorical quote from the Christian Bible regarding Jonah's story reads, quote, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. End quote. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah. The word is a reference to the creative power of the Logos, or the Christ self. Another quote from John 1, 1 reads, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. End quote. The prophet Jonah lived the drama of the three days or the three mountains and incarnated the Christ, becoming one with the word, the verb. He is thus ready to preach the word of the Lord, to do the work of the Christ. Nineveh is a city of three days' journey, again referencing the work or the alchemical work of the three mountains that must be done to accomplish the journey of the Bodhisattva. Quote, and Jonah began, in September the 21st, to enter into the city, a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days in October the 31st, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Remember the aforementioned symbol of the number 40 in relation to death and rebirth. At the end of his forty days in the wilderness and overcoming Lucifer, here is a quote from the Bible, Mark 1.14, quote, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. End quote. The external prophet, Jonah, the Bodhisattva, carries this teaching of redemption to the people of the world, while the internal prophet preaches it to the consciousness. More quotes from the Bible that reflect this. Quote, so the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them in Halloween. That's parentheses, my parentheses. And he did not. Trick or treat. <laughs> Unlike the Egyptians in the story of Moses, the people of Nineveh choose treat. They listened to the word of the prophet and repented. The fasting and wearing of sackcloth are symbols of this repentance and of the sincerity to deny the will of the flesh and the will of God, the way of material desire for the way of being. Thus, the second death is averted, 
As prophesied by Jonah, the end of Nineveh is inevitable. The spirit, the consciousness, the monad are immortal. The ego or the I or the false personality are not immortal. When one's opportunities to transcend the wheel of samsara through conscious effort have been exhausted, then the second death is inevitable. On the battlefield of the great war of the Mahabharata in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna, the Christ, addresses the warrior Arjuna, or the human soul, who is hesitant to slay the numerous kinsmen and friends, or his own egos, who stand against him. Quote, the Lord said, I am mighty, mighty world-destroying time, now engaged here in slaying these men. Even without you, all these warriors standing arrayed in the opposing armies of the egos shall not live. Therefore, stand up and win glory of the being. Conquer your enemies and enjoy an opulent kingdom. By me and none other have they already been slain, not to be distressed by fear. Fight, and you shall conquer your foes in the battle of self-realization. End quote. Obviously, some of these parenthetical things I'm adding in to help you realize the allegorical nature of these statements. And we can see here the connecting threads to all of these major world traditions, and especially really see the exoteric nature of some of the beliefs. And right now, what we are tying together are the esoteric threads connecting them only available to the most innermost initiates of these mysteries. The human soul is always identified with the warrior or Arjuna, Lancelot, Perseus, Mohammed, etc., and it is this human soul who must fight a war of endless battles against impossible odds to attain realization of the self or the being. A few more quotes from the Christian Bible. Quote, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's pretty metal, I have to say. <laughs> Another quote. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. Upon completion of the great work, the bodhisattva achieves a particular level of objective reasoning of his or her being. There exist levels of perfection, even among the perfected. There are six degrees of cognizant objective reasoning of the being. Each degree is represented by a horn of light upon the head. The horns of a master are not to be confused with those of a demon. The horns of a master arise from the top of the head, indicating an illumined pineal gland, the throne of the spirit, illuminated intellect, whereas the horns of a demon protrude from the forehead as a symbol of the intellect of the animal mind, or the satanic intellect. Jonah did not achieve the level of objective knowledge after resurrection that he anticipated. The source of his displeasure is disappointment towards his own level of knowledge of good and evil. An objective reasoning of the being. Here's another quote from the story of Jonah from the Christian Bible. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray to thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, 
for it is better for me to die than to live. Recounting his faithful efforts to do the work of his being, Jonah recognizes the need to know God better and thus consciously renounces the level of perfection already achieved. But since he's already been decapitated, he cannot be recapitated. At this point, a bodhisattva is left with the choice of either descending with the permission of the being or to fall. The only way for a bodhisattva in these traditions to fall is to fornicate. Here is another quote from the Christian Bible, quote, Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth, a sukkah, and sat under it in the shadow, which is the ego, till he might see what would become of the city. In this story, this part of the story rather, Jonah is back at square one. The sun, or the solar logos, or the Christ, rises in the east. As the apocalypse of St. John instructs those who have ears to hear, the coming of the Christ hearkens one's own internal apocalypse as the seven seals are opened, beginning with the seal of the Church of Ephesus, or the Muladhara Chakra, or the Root Chakra. The fiery serpent of the Kundalini that is coiled there three and a half times in the coccyx, or the Muladhara chakra, the root chakra area, must awaken to begin the ascent up the spine. This is the same serpent of Midgard in the Norse tradition, whose awakening announces Armageddon. Remember that it is the mighty strength of Thor, or the Holy Spirit, that drags the serpent Jormungand to the surface of the water. The serpent arises in the east, church of Ephesus, Muladhara and sets in the West. As each seal or churches, chakras, we're starting to connect these things, as each seal or each chakra is opened, the death of the terrestrial world is certain. Let's read another quote from the Christian Bible that reflects these esoteric truths from Revelations 7 2. Quote, and I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, end quote. Here, Jonah is watchful of the city, the legion of egos within himself. He is self-observing. This is a lesson that we must always be on guard against our own inhuman elements or our shadow. Another quote, And the Lord prepared a gourd, the pumpkin, and made it to come up over Jonah so that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceedingly glad of the gourd, the pumpkin. Belong to the hermetic priesthood of Netshak. And I have to do a little sidebar here because it shows at my immaturity level because immediately when I say Netshak, all I think is Nutsack, but that's not what it is. It is Netshak, I believe. And the word is spelled N-E-T-Z-A-C-H. So the powers of the pumpkin in this allegory from the Bible belong to the hermetic priesthood of Netshek, which is the universal mind. The gourd, or pumpkin, that delivers Jonah from his grief represents the creation of the solar mind, Netshek. However, the one who has created the solar mind, but is not yet free of ego, must still struggle within the animal mind, or Satan. Both minds offer comfort. The solar mind, 
offers comfort to the consciousness. The animal mind or Satan offers comfort to the ego. The power of the Arhat lies in knowing how to convert Satan into Christ mind by casting out the demons of his mind when using Christ will and thus building human soul. This is a painful process. This symbol can be found in the Halloween tradition of pumpkins. Traditionally, it's said that gourds, the American gourd, the pumpkin, which became the popular choice over the traditional European varieties, were hollowed out with scary faces carved into them and illuminated by a candle from within. The illuminated face was intended to frighten the evil spirits said to roam on the night of All Hallows' Eve. Irish tradition offers an interesting origin of the name jack-o'-lantern. Jack was a stingy and mean-minded fellow that enjoyed causing mischief. He even tricked the devil into a tree, trapping him there by the placement of crosses at its base. He made the devil promise not to take his soul when he died. The devil agreed. Jack carried on with his tricks until the day he died. Upon his death, he approached the gates of heaven. But when he was denied entrance on account of his many vices, he went to hell. But true to his word, the devil denied him entrance. Jack was thus left to aimlessly wander the earth in darkness between heaven and hell. However, the devil gave him the parting gift of a burning ember from the infernos of hell, placed within a gourd to illuminate his path. Thus, he became known as the Jack of the Lantern, or Jack O'Lantern. From the book Tarot and the Kabbalah by Samuel Aon Bayor, he writes, quote, Stealing fire of the Christ from the devil to light the way through the darkness of ego is the story of the initiate. This symbol is illustrated in the ninth arcanum, the hermit of the tarot. The gourd symbolizes the mind, and the Christ is the light that must illuminate the spirit or the innermost within the mind. The spirit must be seated on his throne. This is why we have to descend into the darkness in order to destroy the I, the personality, the ego, or Satan, to then snatch away this light from the darkness. The light and the fire convert the material mind into Christ mind, while the Arhat illuminates his caverns with the torch of his candlestick. After Jonah was vomited from the fish, he preached in Nineveh and sat beneath a pumpkin gourd. He did this in order to work with the powers of the mind that blaze within the sparks of the cosmic mind's glowing embers. People do not understand the symbol of Jonah. Despite the fact that Christ resurrected after three days, people ask for signs from Christ, but he gave only the sign of Jonah." End quote. This same book explains how the elemental of the pumpkin gourd is intimately connected with the mental plane and the waters. The connection is clear to those who have done some understanding of the relationship between the pineal gland and the sexual organs. Jonah, the dove of the Holy Spirit, utilizes the science of the pumpkin gourd to invite the masses to repent. More from the book Tarot and the Kabbalah, quote, We can work with the multitudes with the powers of the elemental of the pumpkin gourd. The elemental of the pumpkin gourd has terrific powers over the multitudes. Jonah made Nineveh repent of its sins with the elemental magic of the pumpkin gourd. Jonah was three days in the belly of a fish. On the third day, the fish vomited him onto the square of Nineveh. Jonah then seated himself beneath a pumpkin gourd, and all the people of Nineveh repented. 
they tore their vestures, covered their bodies with sackcloth, and proclaimed a fast. I want you now to understand, O Arhat, the existing intimate relationship between the fish of the sea and the pumpkin gourd. There is a powerful angel who governs the fish of the sea and the elementals of the gourd plants. The current of life that passes through the fish of the sea is the same current that passes through the vegetable family of the pumpkin gourd. The igneous angel who governs the gourd plants is the same ardent flame who governs all the fish of the immense sea. And here in the book, it quotes another passage from the Christian Bible. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And the book continues on to write, Remove your vile vestments, because they are filled with worms from all rotting matter. The worm of the rotting matter dries and kills the pumpkin gourd. The animal nature of the egocentric mind rots the gourd of the intellect or the pumpkin of the intellect. The horrible worms of desire feed upon the degeneration of the sensual mind. It's important and necessary to understand and act upon the lesson of John the Baptist, Netzach, or the mind, if one is to receive the gospel of John the Beloved, or Tipareth, or the heart. The esoteric truth here, the allegory, is that the intellectual mind must be decapitated. Even the solar mind is the inferior manas in comparison to the superior manas of Tipareth. The inferior mind thinks, the superior mind knows. If one is thinking, one is not being. The Lord is the God of I am. Thus says the Lord, I am that I am in Exodus 3.14. Any intellectual animal can think, but only the illuminated one knows through not thinking. Everything is happening. Thinking does not exist except in the mind. The concept of Descartes, I think, therefore I am, is completely false. The one who thinks does not really exist because the one who is and expresses through the true human being is the higher self or the innermost. And the innermost does not think. He knows. We can explore more of this esoteric truth in this quote from Hamlet by William Shakespeare. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And here I'm going to pause. It's the mind that identifies with the slings and arrows of fortune through the law of the pendulum, swinging towards pleasure and away from pain, never in equilibrium. And in Jonah 1.4 in the Bible, it writes, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, which is a reference to act, do, and not to think or rationalize. William Shakespeare continues in this passage from Hamlet, and by opposing end them, to die, to sleep, no more. And so here we can analyze this. He means to die in ego, to sleep in consciousness, no more. These are the options, to sleep in darkness or end the darkness and awaken to the light. Another quote from the Christian Bible addressing this allegorical truth. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east-west and the sun beat upon the head, the pumpkin of Jonah, 
that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. The Son is the physical manifestation of the Christ. It sacrifices of itself unconditionally from moment to moment so that life may exist in this solar system. Like a vehement wind, egotistical passions orchestrated by Lucifer, the shadow of the Christ, cause Jonah great pain as the animal mind withers under the healing power of the Christ. The solar Christ gives every resurrected master his own level of objective reasoning, and this is obtained through sacrifice, the way of the Christ. Quote, Whoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. End quote. Jonah recognizes the need to die, to hang Judas from the tree. This work is accomplished in the ninth sphere with the cross of the lingam yoni. Peter, the rock, or the philosophic stone, the holy grail, is crucified upside down to indicate the need to descend into the ninth sphere, into one's particular kilpoth to do the work of the cross. This is the imperative purpose of the human soul, to comprehend the egos that live within the obscurity of one's own psychology that express through the three brains, intellectual, emotional, motor, instinctive, and sexual, that they may be annihilated. Only by dying in these elements does the initiate perform the will of the being, and only thus can one save the necessary energy in order to achieve the intimate self-realization of the being. More quotes from the Christian Bible. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd, or the pumpkin? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, the pumpkin, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest grow, which came up in the night and perished in a night. It is the being, specifically the Divine Mother, that creates the vehicles of the soul and thus the solar mind. It's easy for the initiate to become identified with these vehicles which bring him comfort and, in fact, powers. It's the ego that identifies and says, these are mine. But these vehicles are created by the being and belonged to the being. They are created in the dark of night born within the womb of the Divine Mother. Remember that Genesis occurs in darkness. The germinating seed is buried within the darkness of the earth. The embryo is conceived within the darkness of the womb. The initiatic process also begins in darkness of ego, as does the alchemical creation of the To Soma Haleakon. But that which was born in darkness also perishes in darkness. The darkness in which the human soul is gestated is also the darkness of the animal mind, the ego. Christ is born into the stable of the animal mind as light that shines through the darkness. The darkness is the false prince of this age of Kali Yuga, the three-headed black dragon of the apocalypse that must be decapitated. The three heads are the three traitors that are carried within, the demon of desire, or Judas, the demon of the mind, Pontius Pilate, and the demon of evil will, or Cacophys. It's imperative that these traitors must perish in the darkness faced by the Bodhisattva in the descent into the ninth sphere, or into the nine Dantesque regions of his own inferno.
another quote from the Bible. And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? The number six is a number related to the human soul, as in the tree of life. The human soul is sent by his own particular father who is in heaven to do his work. He is given ten commandments, or twelve in esoteric traditions, to follow, as related with the ten objective sephiro of the tree of life. The sixth commandment is, Thou shall not fornicate. This commandment is related to the sixth sephiro of the tree of life, Tibereth, the human soul. It is thus the primary commandment of the human soul that seeks to do the will of the Father. It's important here to clarify the mistranslation of this commandment appearing in many texts as thou shalt not commit adultery. The original Hebrew for the sixth commandment is read as lo ha niyap, niyap, or nun alef peh, which are the Hebrew letters associated to this word, is an English Hebrew dictionary means fornicate. Thus, the correct translation of the complete phrase nola hiyap is do not you fornicate. The first commandment of the human soul is not to fornicate. This is why chastity is traditionally an important virtue encouraged in the religions of the world. But chastity is again a term the meaning of which has been lost to the dictates of dogma. Chastity does not mean celibacy. Chastity means abstaining from the sexual spasm not spilling the cup of Hermes. One who practices alchemy or white tantra is chaste and remains a virgin despite sexual connection, conception, and birth. Chastity is not abstention from sexual connection. It is the retention of orgasm. When a couple is united sexually in chastity or alchemy, the Holy Spirit, Bina, is the third witness of that union. It is the fire of the Holy Spirit within the waters of Yesod, Seminis, that truly baptizes the couple, per the beliefs of these esoteric practices, of course. The number six is also related to the sixth arcanum, indecision. This arcanum illustrates the initiate, the human soul, trapped between the choice of the virgin and the whore. One will take him to el religare, or unity with his being, while the other will lead him to the abyss. But he is fallen, as indicated by the downward-facing triangle in the waters in which he stands. Thus, he's facing the whore, indicating his penchant towards desire sensation of the ego, not necessarily sexual. Despite his intention to walk the path, as indicated by the direction of his feet towards the female master or divine mother, as with the six score thousand persons of Nineveh, he wants to do what is right, but is clouded by the ignorance of the ego and cannot discern between his left hand and his right hand. This is the one that wants God, truth, but also wants that which is against God, which is greed, lust, pride, desire, etc., etc., etc. And this is the choice of the individual from moment to moment to walk the narrow path of the being that leads to life or the broad path of the ego that leads to destruction. Note the angel of the law and the superior aspect of the arcanum with a weapon poised to deliver justice. The fallen human soul, which is related to the number six in tarot and in Kabbalah, fornicates in the mind, heart, and action. Another quote that reflects this is from 
Revelation 13, 18, and it writes, Here is the wisdom. Let him hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six, which is six, six, six. Woo, we're getting metal up in here. And thus the first commandment states, quote, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That is from Mark 1230. The number six score thousand, which is 120,000, is a reference to the apostolate, Arcanum 12, which is 120,000 equals 12. The apostolate hangs from the symbol of the earth to indicate that he is a slave to matter. His body forms the symbol of the fallen, a cross, the sex formed by his legs over a triangle, the monad formed by his arms. This is a symbol that represents the sex dominating reason. The whole work of Arcanum 12 is to invert the symbol until the triangle is above the cross, the monad, reason, being above the sex. In other words, having your higher self in control and not your animalistic mind and being controlled and dragged around by your desires. For this to occur, the 12 must be transformed. This means to do this lies within the number 12 itself. 12 equals 1 plus 2 equals 3, or by now, the Holy Spirit. The wise use of the Holy Spirit within the waters of Yesod, which we've already covered here, will convert the negative aspects of the fallen soul into the positive aspects of the standing men, or the human soul. The number six is again referenced within the inferior aspect of the apostolate in variation with the seal of Solomon. The superior triangle, pointing upwards, represents the trinity of the Logos. The inferior triangle, pointing downwards, represents the three traitors of desire and action, Judas, mind, Pontius Pilate, and evil will, the antithesis of the divine triad. The three coins that are falling from the bound hands of the apostolate into the waters represent the value of the logos that have been squandered through the misuse of the sex. Remember the 30, 30 equals 3 coins cast by Judas to the floor of the temple. When foolishly squandered, these values are converted into the three traitors of the intellect, emotions, and actions. But when wisely utilized through the science of alchemy, then one fabricates the brazen armor of the great heroes within the forge of the Vulcan, announcing the apocalypse of all that is against God, or the three traitors in these esoteric practices. Thus, the seal of Solomon is depicted in the waters of Arcanum 12 to indicate the means to retrieve these lost coins by descending into the ninth sphere, or practicing alchemy. In this respect, the seal of Solomon is the star of Bethlehem that guides the way to Christ. So why is the Lord God in the Christian Bible so interested in the cattle of Nineveh? Bodhisattvas as incarnations of the Christ are frequently depicted in the role of cowherd or shepherd. The Hindu savior Krishna is raised as a cowherd. The Jewish Messiah Moses becomes a shepherd before his divine mission to Egypt. Abraham is a cowherd of vast property. The Greek hero, sun god Apollo, considered the patron defender of herds, serves as a cowherd for nine years in addition to possessing his own immortal herd. 
the Persian savior Mithra, the good cowherd, is the giver and protector of cattle. Jesus the Christ, the great Kabir, refers to himself as the good shepherd. The Celtic Christ, Belenus, is also a shepherd and cowherd. See the connections here? The herds that are lovingly watched over by these fatherly masters are the consciousness. Externally, these masters have assumed the responsibility of nurturing the consciousness of their students and disciples. Another quote from the Christian Bible, John 10, 16, is, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, end quote. So internally, one's own divine father, the superior aspect of the monad, is responsible for the spiritual development of the consciousness. The divine father, Chesed, or mercy, will not abandon the cattle or the consciousness of Nineveh. This means that he will not abandon the consciousness of his own faithful human soul, who in this allegory is represented by Jonah nor will he abandon the faithful of those that he's sent to his human soul to shepherd, the people of Nineveh. The Day of the Dead, or All Saints Day, is celebrated on November 1st. It's an esoteric festival for the triumphant dead, a celebration for those who have succeeded in dying themselves, who have achieved the triumphant emergence of their Averno after their Halloween or their Holy Evening, eliminating all their ego, these victorious ones have defeated their suffering or the karma of their being. These are souls who, through the course of their initiatic life, achieved religare or union with their internal God, their higher self, and who were not condemned to the second death or to the torment of the infernal worlds. The victorious ones who overcome death do so by dying in those elements that make them, quote, dead in trespasses and sins, quote, or ego. They defeat the prince of the power of air. The power of air is the mind. The mind is the power of the satanic will of the chief feature or the prince. It is through the mind that desires of the flesh, gratification of the ego, are fulfilled. Thus, it is the animal mind, the stubborn mule, that must be conquered so that the being may triumphantly ride it into the heavenly Jerusalem. But in the children of disobedience, or our current humanity, it is the donkey that rides on the back of the owner. It is during the autumnal season that all things hibernate, slow down, and die. Life withdraws, contracts, and is naturally drawn down into the earth. And from this time until the vernal equinox in the spring, the earth passes through a natural period of cleansing and preparation for the rebirth of spring. Thus, the season provides an example that should be followed in the initiatic process. Hiram Abif, a Masonic legend, lies entombed at the centers of the earth within the ninth sphere. We must descend into our own psychological earth, to the depths of our own Kilpoth, the ninth sphere of Neptune. We are like Persephone going into the underworld with Hades. And through the wise use of the ninth sphere, we must comprehend and annihilate the egos that reside in every infernal level of Kilpoth. Only then 
can Hiram or the internal Christ within you be resurrected from his sepulcher during Easter? Halloween is a festivity that teaches us the importance of mystical death, the need to comprehend that the mind is isolated and under the domination of the unconscious shadows of the ego. If we are able to recognize that we are not Buddhas, angels, or saints, then we are able to change. Is it possible to become what we are not if we continue to grasp on to what we are? A seed cannot become a tree without first dying as a seed. We cannot become angels if we do not die to what makes us demons. Within the mysteries of Halloween is not only the reminder of this lesson of death, but also the means to achieve it. Halloween is therefore an esoteric and profound celebration not to be mistaken with the current holiday that is celebrated in this age of Kali Yuga. May the light of the internal Christ illuminate our pumpkins. I want to thank you for venturing into the unknown with me. Full details about the selected text are available in the episode description. Selected readings are for the purpose of research and study, entertainment, discussion, and consciousness expansion. The views and opinions expressed in the included readings belong to the original authors or creators and may not necessarily reflect my own. The episode description also contains links that will allow you to join the community on social media and support the continued production of this podcast. Don't forget to follow the show on your favorite podcast player so you are alerted when new episodes are released. In a wonderland they lie, dreaming as the days go by, dreaming as the summers die, ever drifting down the stream, lingering in the golden gleam. Life, what is it but a dream? Night-night, bitch.